0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening
1: right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Would you like to travel back in time? I mean, sure, we watch movies about it. Maybe we fantasize a little bit about it. But if given the chance to see what you looked like back in the past, would you take it? Well, that part of time travel may actually be possible. I know, it sounds kind of complicated, so let's find out more about it. Andrea Alu is the co-researcher and founding director of the Photonics Initiative at the City University of New York's Advanced Science Research Center and joins us now. Andrea, thank you for being here.
2: Thank you. Thanks for your interest.
1: Can you explain to me what is this concept all about?
2: Yeah, we were able to demonstrate for the first time the time reflection of the electromagnetic waves of the waves that carry Uh, Photons, And um, the idea has been around for uh, uh, many years. It it was theorized uh, over 70 years ago. And it's basically the dual phenomenon of a a conventional reflection, a spatial reflection. Uh, I guess all of us are familiar with uh, reflecting light from a mirror. Um, That happens because uh, light hits uh, a boundary, an interface, in which there is a large contrast between the optical properties of the Mirror, material, and uh, air.
1: Okay. What What does it do then?
2: What we achieved is the dual of that in time. So basically creating a mirror that uh, exists everywhere in space but happens at one instant in time. And uh, the result is that uh, the wave is uh, time reversed. Basically comes back with oppositely played content. It's like uh, hearing an echo but uh, time reversed. Wait a minute. And so I can
1: I, can I can look at this, and it is going to show me what I look like. What twenty years ago? Uh,
2: no, not really. But if you uh, basically, uh, if you um, look at it uh, as a, uh, if you look into a time mirror, you would see your back rather than your face.
1: Okay. This, okay. How do you make that happen? That's weird. That's that's so weird.
2: Yeah. We exploit a duality between space and time. Uh, the equations that govern how waves travel have a, a duality between space and time. And uh, therefore, it is expected that if you can create uh, a, an interface in time, something that uh, uh, changes a medium very fast in time and with an abrupt, large change, then uh, the wave suddenly has to uh, um, play in reverse, essentially. So it's still in the future. we are not uh, uh, going back in time, but we are uh, playing l- letting that wave suddenly choose to go backwards and uh, uh, play in reverse order. Okay. that is uh, very useful for various applications
1: right, so you're playing with the way time normally flows
2: exactly. If you think in terms of frequencies, if you are familiar with the, every um, signal can be expanded into temporal frequencies, we are uh, uh, converting the time to negative frequencies, and that's what uh, allows us to play the the signal in reverse.
1: Okay, so what could this do then? Where could this be used in the future, Andrea?
2: So there are many applications for which uh, um, this form of time reversal, it's also known as phase conjugation, is useful. Uh, For imaging, for instance, this uh, has been used for a long time, and uh, Conventional techniques to apply phase conjugation are limited. They either happen uh, uh, using uh, uh, signal processing, that is slow and inefficient, or it happens only for uh, uh, specific frequencies. Our uh, technique shows that we can create this form of time mirror that uh, is very efficient at time reversing, and uh, it works very fast, essentially in one instant in time, and applies to all frequencies of the signal, it's uh, frequency agnostic. So that can be useful for uh, wireless communications, uh, for instance, to uh, eliminate distortions in a channel as waves propagate in a channel. By time reversing it, you can compensate for those distortions, um, for uh, imaging, as I said, for uh, radar applications, uh, self-driving cars, automotive applications, uh, and many others, computing as well.
1: Right, so this is still in the experimental phase, right?
2: Yeah, we were able to demonstrate for the first time this phenomenon uh, in, in a special material that we built ad hoc for this. It's still a proof of concept, uh, and there is a long way to make it work, for instance, for uh, uh, visible light. For now, we worked with the light that oscillates uh, slower, the, the same thing, uh, type of oscillations that we use to carry wireless information, uh, like our cellular right. uh, cell
1: Andrea, how long did it take you to get to this point? Like, this seems like quite a breakthrough. So how long before, like, how much more work do you have to do before it has more practical applications?
2: It took us quite long, actually. We were interested in this uh, phenomenon for a couple of years, and uh, we did the experiment. Also, um, some parts of the experiment initially were puzzling, and we had to uh, uh, actually redevelop some part of the theory that was known for this time reflections, and uh, uh, still, uh, we're very excited to explore many areas. First, as I said, to push it to higher frequencies. Uh, we're looking at uh, new materials that can be used for that and also um, um, use different techniques to apply these sharp changes of the optical properties in time using powerful lasers. And um, the other direction is to uh, um, combine multiple of these uh, time interfaces, creating... Uh, Forms of time crystals; that are the uh, dual of a uh, conventional periodic crystal, spatial crystal, but in time.
1: You know, Andrea, when a lot of us hear just the basics of this, we think, "Are you like? Are you? Is this time travel? Is that what you're working on here?"
2: No, no, that's the opposite. The, the, that's a, sometimes it's confusing, but actually, it's interesting. In a conventional reflection, the wave goes back in space. In a time reflection, unfortunately, the wave still goes into the future. It's just uh, time reversed, uh, however strange shape it may have. But uh, the time reflections and time transmission happen all in the future. We cannot uh, overcome causality.
1: Right. But you are still, the fact that you're playing with time and the way it, it, it you know, comes to us, that's a, huge, that's a huge thing, Andrea. You must be getting a lot of interest from people on this.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, we're very excited. It uh, has been um, something that people have speculated on for uh, 70 years and uh, we were happy to be able to find a way to do it. The challenge was to create uh, a material that could be switched in time fast enough and with a large contrast. These two um, ingredients were necessary to see time reflections and we found an ingenious way to do it using a collection of switches and uh, um, reservoir elements that could be added and subtracted to the material. So it was a, an interesting journey.
1: It sure sounds like it. Andrea, thank you for that this morning.
2: Thanks very much. Appreciate your time.
1: Andrea Alou is the co researcher and founding director of the Photonics Initiative at the City University of New York's Advanced Science Research Center. They are bending time, essentially, they are playing with how time flows. And wow, when they get really going on that, they said it's still in the experimental phase. uh, But that's a pretty big breakthrough in the field of quantum physics, I would say. Uh, This is the thing that I love about being able to do this job is hearing stories like that. And then years later, when it comes into more practical use, being able to say, hey, I remember talking to those people about that. I remember hearing and learning about that firsthand.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: i shocked that someone was carrying a
0: knife that large. Never seen like a knife, someone carrying a knife like that. It, it could have done a lot
1: of damage. That is Laura Cornell, who is the owner of Laura's Coffee Corner. It's a coffee shop where, in White Rock where they had quite the incident this week where a man showed up, was yelling, and eventually pulled a knife. And the fact that a BC Liberal MLA, Eleanor Sturko, former police officer, was walking along there and about to go have a coffee, kind of changed everything. Now, I don't want to tell the whole story. I would prefer that we get the story directly. So, Eleanor Sturko joins us now. Good morning,
3: Good morning, Sammy. Did you play Burton Cummings just for me? That's
1: my favorite. <laughs> uh, no, we actually played it just for me because I love it. <laughs> but oh I'm my so, god, great song! I'm so glad. I'm just a huge Burton Cummings fan in general, so I'm glad that it was it was good for you too. <laughs> um, let's let's talk about what happened here. So, so can you set the scene for us? Like, what was going on here?
3: Actually, it was funny because um, I saw a clip from um, Laura that said it was a fluke that I was there. It was no fluke. I love Laura's corner. They have great pastries. So I was actually there having a coffee and an almond croissant with my friend, Jen. Um, and, you know, sadly, a, an individual walked up, um, was talking on a phone clearly in um, a mental health crisis was yelling into the phone, started yelling at people sitting outside the cafe. There's a nice, a lovely little sitting area And, um, all of a sudden he, he pulled a knife out, a big hunting knife and, um, yeah, then he, I actually had stood up and started walking towards him, but he actually dropped it. Um, and then, so I just, if you see the video, you see, like I kind of do a little hop, I hopped onto the knife and then I just kicked it backwards. So um, honestly, it wasn't he dropped the knife, thankfully. And I have to say, like, I had to explain that very carefully to my wife because she was like, oh, my God, don't forget, you have no tools. You're not a police officer anymore. So I wouldn't advise people to confront armed people if he hadn't fumbled the knife that he had been brandishing. I wouldn't have gotten that close to him because it would have been too dangerous.
1: Right. But your first instinct, though, which is pretty (laughs) clear, was to walk into this situation. Right. It was.
3: I have to, you know, I don't want to see anyone get hurt, including the individual who wasn't well. You know, I I don't want to see people get stabbed. And I think any police officer, whether they're still working or retired, will tell you that the training that we receive, you train your whole life to deal with these kinds of things and routinely do de-escalate situations and deal with people that have weapons. And so I think I was kind of joking around with Ahmad yesterday I said you can take the girl out of the police, but you can't take the police out of the girl. And I think <laughs> clearly still no, my training, you know, I want to try to de escalate the situation and I don't want to see my, you know, neighbors and friends or anyone in the community get hurt. And um, you know, so my first instinct was to try to talk to the to the guy and then thankfully like he had waved the knife. He pulled it out, like that's the thing too, is that you know when you're dealing with someone who may be in a crisis, it's not, there is, it's unpredictable. And so I had no indication before he pulled the knife out that it actually existed at all. And I think for all of us sitting there, it was quite surprising. Um,
1: Right. But but that's that's the thing. That's the thing I think is that we don't have that training. We don't all have that training. So a lot of us, I think would feel very frightened in that moment. We would feel very helpless in that moment, not knowing what's about to happen. But also what scares us is the fact that this is happening. I mean, this was a a normally like quiet little area of White Rock. And if it happens there, doesn't it feel like that it could happen anywhere?
3: Well, and I guess that's the thing. And, you know, initially when I thought, okay, I'll talk to a I'll talk to media about it. I, my desire actually was to sort of highlight the fact that we actually have very insufficient mental health supports. The real issue for me isn't, the whole nice thing is, you know, it's interesting story and everything, but the real issue for me is that here we had a mother who was desperate to receive help for her adult son. He clearly has, it was not a drug induced thing as far as I could tell. I didn't see any symptoms of, you know, or symptomology of intoxication. This is someone who appeared to have a mental health, issue. And the fact that it had to come to a crisis where we have an individual waving um, a knife, you know, traumatizing people in the community, he must have been in severe distress too. Like as as frightening as it is for people to have a knife pulled on them, I, it's hard to imagine what the person who's actually in crisis might be experiencing some type of severe anxiety or fear within themselves to do that kind of behavior. And it's really sad and terrible that we have so many people apparently right now walking around on the street feeling that they're not getting the help that they need. And then we have, particularly in situations where we have adult children and parent caregivers, um, it's really difficult for them to receive help. So, you know, hearing from the mom saying, you know, good, I'm glad the police are coming because I cannot get help. I need help for my son. That's not the first time I've heard that. But, you know, um, I'm really, really, one of the things I think is great, and I went over to the North Shore with Corinne Kirkpatrick and we visited the Canadian Mental Health Association and they have a civilian team that goes into the community to try to help people before a crisis, so before it escalates to something like what happened outside of Laura's. We really need to see more of that to help direct people into services, to help provide supports for families before it gets to a situation that's dangerous for the public and for the person who has the mental health issue. Oh,
1: that's very true. Listen, thank you for telling us about it today. appreciate that. Yeah,
3: no worries. I appreciate the Burton Cummings. I appreciate the opportunity <laughs> to talk to you. And uh, if you get a chance to go to Laura's, it's not a dangerous place.
1: I will definitely stop there next time I'm out that way, which is actually fairly often. So, Eleanor, thank you so much. Thank you for your time, Sydney. That's Eleanor Stirko, BC liberal MLA and the Mental Health Addiction Recovery Critic uh, for the party, talking about a situation that unfolded at a quiet coffee shop in White Rock, where a man clearly in mental health distress. Ah, uh, pulled out a large hunting knife. Customers were there; they were alarmed. Elena Sterko was there, and she, as you know, a lot of us, we'd be frozen. I'd be frozen. I wouldn't know what to do. Ah, uh, but she stepped forward to try to deescalate the situation. When the man dropped the knife, she stepped on it, pushed it out of the way, and uh, managed to, you know, get everything under control. Police arrived, uh, but it was a scary, scary situation. And as you know, we were talking about is. People shouldn't be put in that situation. That man shouldn't be put in that situation. He needs help clearly. Uh, and we obviously need to do better when it comes to getting people the help that they need to. If you want to weigh in, Simi at CKNW.com.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Joe Biden has been the U.S. president for more than two years, but today actually marks his first official visit to Ottawa. And they have a lot of lost time to make up for here. Many topics that those two are going to be covering with the prime minister in several meetings that are going to be happening. To find out more about this, joining us now is Taria Izri, who is our global national reporter, uh, telling us all about this trip today. Good morning. Morning. So what can we expect to get out of this? What um, what kind of preparation is going into this for today? Well, Biden isn't here yet. He's expected to
0: arrive this evening along with the First Lady, but there are signs everywhere that he's coming. The American flag is uh, flying on Parliament Hill. There's lots of security. Um, and as you point out, there is a lot to cover. Uh, defense, the economy, um, immigration. So, Biden is likely going to cover all these topics during his address to parliament tomorrow. Uh, This is a presidential tradition, but it has been a long time since a a president has spoken to parliament. Uh, Trump broke that tradition. So um, yeah, it's kind of a return to what is normally the tight relationship Canada and the U S have, but um, you know, it, it has taken a while as you point out uh, he's been president for two years, and while the pandemic had delayed his visit, he has visited other countries. Um, so we'll look forward to hearing what he has to yeah. say. Um, definitely, the economy will be the big topic of discussion.
1: Yeah, has there been an indication from you know the government about what their priorities are in these discussions today?
0: Um, as far as the U.S. government is concerned, um, it will really be a, a lot about promoting clean energy. And clean energy jobs, and and that is also a priority for the Trudeau government. Um, the Americans are spending massively on this with the Inflation Reduction Act—you know, five hundred billion dollars in government spending—and a lot of that is going towards green jobs. Um, Canada is also focused on this as it transitions away from fo- or tries to transition away from fossil fuels, and you can really see this by um, the Prime Minister. You know, visiting lots of electric vehicle manufacturing plants, he's really trying to market Canada as a major producer of critical minerals. Now these are the um, minerals that go into things like lithium batteries, which are needed for electric vehicles, and it's all part of a, a strategy on the part of Canada and Canada and also the u s to be less reliant on China. So, I, I think really promoting green jobs is going to be a, a major topic of discussion between the two leaders.
1: Right. And I know they'll, you know, they'll be all friendly and it'll all look like a great one, but there are still some thorny issues, too, Taria. So, what are some of those expected, more challenging issues that the two leaders might discuss?
0: I mean, the big challenge is really defense. Canada, you know, routinely misses its NATO targets. Uh, we've been under pressure for years to get our defense spending up. I mean, you can just, Our own military says that, but you can see that in the state of military equipment, the lack of personnel. So um, I think privately there will probably be a a push to spend more on NATO, to spend more on NORAD, so air defense especially um, in the wake of that suspected Chinese uh, spy balloon being shot down. Yeah, another point of uh, contention, perhaps, is Haiti. The U.S. has been asking Canada for months now to lead a ground mission to try to stabilize the situation in Haiti. Um, gangs have taken over control of large parts of that country. Uh, murder, kidnapping is rampant. Um, but so far, Canada seems reluctant to want to get entangled in some sort of ground mission. Um, perhaps there'll be more pressure from Biden. On that front, um, immigration also is a major challenge. We've seen a real surge in irregular border crossings at the Roxham Road border, so that's the border uh, between New York and Quebec. Trudeau is under a lot of pressure from the Quebec Premier to try to, uh, you know, control those numbers, same with the opposition. Uh, So perhaps, you know, I mean, that will definitely be a topic of discussion, whether there'll be any solutions, that's kind of another story. Um, so really defense and immigration will be some, some major challenges that these leaders will have to hash out.
1: Okay. And so you said he arrives, uh, later today. How long will he be here for?
0: So he's here for two days. He's, uh, spending, um, he'll, he'll be overnight in Ottawa. So that's, I don't think that's happened actually for the last two decades. So it's pretty significant. It just shows how important this relationship is. Um, And, yeah, the big thing will be uh, his address to Parliament tomorrow and then a state dinner.
1: All right. We'll see what happens. Thanks so much for that this morning. Thanks. That's Teresa Isri from Global News talking about the visit starting later today by U.S. President Joe Biden. Now, as she mentioned there, it has been more than 20 years since a U.S. president has actually stayed this long in the country. They might have, you know, in the past come for a day and left. But this is a pretty significant visit considering that it's actually taken a while right for President Biden to get here. Longer visit. Also, the address to Parliament is something that does not happen with every presidency. Uh, yes, he is doing it tomorrow. Previously done by Barack Obama, 2016; Bill Clinton, 1995; Ronald Reagan did it in 87; Richard Nixon did it. So Ford and Carter did not. Uh, John F. Kennedy did it. Uh, We had Eisenhower who did it. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt did it. So this will only be the 10th time that it's actually happened. So it is a pretty significant visit. But as mentioned, there's also a lot for them to discuss. And we will, of course, continue to have complete coverage of that. Gets underway a little bit later today. This is Mornings with Simi. It doesn't feel right and having to explain to my daughters that this is how I have to write it on these papers because they question why am I writing it wrong. Okay, that was Shani the P talking to APTN about the challenges and the roadblocks that she faces when she's trying to get the government to recognize the traditional names of her daughters. And this is something that the BC Liberal MLA for Columbia River Revelstoke, Doug Klobchuk, is trying to get changed, actually, has introduced his Indigenous Names Statutes Amendment Act. And this, the, the NDP government has not yet addressed this. They they failed to call forward a similar bill about a year or so ago. Let's talk about why this is so important, though. So Doug Klochuk joins us now to talk more about it. Thank you for being here.
4: Well, thank you, Simi. It's great to be here.
1: Can you tell me what inspired this?
4: Well, you know, number one, uh, the inspiration uh, for this bill was was because it's needed. But I also received a uh, letter from a grade 12 high school student in Golden who was impassioned about this uh, issue, uh, articulate. And uh, so when I read that letter, I just said to myself, I've I've got to do something about this. And I I think the lesson I really wanted, uh, you know, Emmy Abs to have uh, from Golden was the fact that even though you're not old enough to vote yet, uh, your voice can be heard in the legislature. And she was so passionate and, and articulate about it that uh, I decided I had to put forward this bill. And it was about time that this did And, and to your point, uh, we did it and uh, I put it forward in uh, 2002 and nothing came about. So I put it uh, forward again uh, this uh, this session
1: and we'll see where it goes. OK, and tell me about the bill then. What would it call for?
4: Well basically what this uh, bill does is it, it introduced introduces legislation that allows indigenous language characters uh, on birth certificates uh, pardon me birth certificates uh, adoption papers and, and pieces of government identification in British Columbia and, um, what 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 it really looks like is it will allow for characters other than latin alphabet letters <coughs> excuse me to be officially accepted and recognized on these government documents like birth certificates and so on, so question marks, uh, you know, little uh, uh, triangular symbols, different types of symbols uh, that would be recognized that are incredibly important to those names and, and to those people. So that's what it would do. And and um, previously, the uh, indigenous uh, First Nations, you uh, know, uh, and of course T people have been told by the government that we can't do this. We don't have the software to do it. Well. You know the way that I looked at it is that uh, with the amount of money they're shoveling out of the back of their truck right now, they certainly can find some uh, software writers to uh, to make this happen. And and I, I was very pleased when uh, when in, in the house when uh, the NDP government uh, made it possible for uh, for Ukrainian uh, refugees to write their driver's licenses in Ukrainian, and that's going to be happening according to the Solicitor General by the end of the month um, instead of Russian, which made complete sense and. I guess what i the way that I look at this is is that if it can you know and and that's the right thing to do uh if but if it can happen for those folks, it should be happening for the indigenous people of this country
2: right
1: you make a great point though, but where there's a will, it can be made to happen right oh
4: absolutely and you know the the upside of this uh this time around is that uh, after I had presented the bill in the house, I did get a a, a message a note message passed to me. From the Minister of Indigenous Affairs and Reconciliation, that he wanted to meet with me, and, and that meeting hopefully is going to happen next week when we're back in session. And hope you we know, do with, with any good luck we can push this thing forward. But you have to remember that these these Indigenous names were, were literally stolen um, from re- residential school survivors, uh, the 60 scoop. Uh, the, you know prior prior to uh, arrival of of, uh, of uh, you know colonialists, there, there were people here for thousands of years who had names. And these names were literally stripped away from them in in that residential school system process. So these people want these names back because they have significant cultural meaning and value.
1: One of the other things I like about this is that your bill provides funding for language revitalization programs, where these are also becoming quite popular, aren't they?
4: Well, they they, they sure are. And I think it's really important to note along that line is that this bill uh, falls in in concert with the... uh, with the adoption of, of uh, UNDRIP, uh, the calls to, one of the calls to action in truth and reconciliation, uh, one of the 94 calls, I think it's Section 17. Um, and if you if you recognize, in order for reconciliation to happen, uh, there has to be the recognition of truth. Well, the truth is that these names were literally stolen away from Indigenous people. So once you recognize that truth, the way to reconcile this is to fix it. And the government has the opportunity, it has the resources to fix this. So, You know, get off your hands, guys, and let's get this
5: done.
1: What is the impression that you've gotten then from the government about the possibilities of this bill actually making it through?
4: Well, the first time I presented it, I did get some feedback from some ministers that I know on that side, and I won't name them, but uh, they thought it was a really good idea. They thought it was a good bill. And the fact that uh, Minister Rankin uh, sent me the note immediately after I sat down in my chair in the legislature, I think that's a good indication that uh, they're interested. So... You know, I'm going to keep pushing this thing. And uh, it's, I, I call it, I mean, it's, it's Bill M213, but I still call it Emmy's Bill from the young woman in Golden that that sent the, the letter to me. And I'm going to keep pushing it as hard as I can.
1: Well, I think it's fascinating. Thanks so much for talking to us about it this morning.
4: Well, I sure appreciate the opportunity, and you have a fantastic day.
1: You too. That's Doug Klochuk, who's the BC Liberal MLA for Columbia River Revelstoke, talking about his private members' bill. Now, I know private members' bills, they face an uphill battle, right, by their very nature, because they don't generally have the support of the government, so you have to get things passed. But this one seems a little bit different. This it, It's a great idea. It's something really that he's right, that the government should have already done. And there is a way to make it happen if the will is there. So it has been praised by Indigenous leaders and organizations. They see this as an important step towards reconciliation, the recognition of Indigenous rights. Still early, though, in the process. So we'll keep an eye on it and see what happens with it.
0: This is Mornings with Simi. My message
6: and my plea, just open communication and just more of an understanding that we're not trying to gouge anybody. We're we're just trying to make it doable.
1: All right. That's daycare owner, Brittany Newbar. Now, Brittany was on our show yesterday. She was talking about the frustrations that workers and center owners have. They're still waiting for their fee reduction contracts to be approved by the province. And she says this, it's taking way too long and it's causing stress for owners like her and for the parents that use their their facilities. And she feels like the government has been ignoring their concerns. So what is causing the delay in getting these contracts approved? Why are they still waiting for answers? So for that we turn to the Minister of State for Child Care for BC and that is Grace Lohr who joins us now. Thank you for joining us. Good morning Simi, thank you for having me. Okay, thank you for answering some questions for us because we're curious what is the delay in getting so many of these child care contracts approved?
6: Yeah, thanks Simi. I want to start by thanking child care providers for working with us to reduce family fees. Um, 90% of licensed providers are participating in the fee reduction initiative. And that means that more than 70,000 families are saving up to $900 a month. Um, It's clear that this renewal period is very busy and very stressful for providers. And we've heard from them. I've talked to many of them directly this week. Um, So we know we have some work to do to improve our systems and communication. And I want to assure providers and parents that all completed applications uh, that are, are requesting 3% or lower for April 1st will be approved. Families uh, will see no change and they will see no disruption for the start of the month.
1: Right. But how do we fix this? Because we can't they can't do this every year. It seems like it is stressful for childcare providers every year to go through this process.
6: Yes, and I have had a chance to talk to many of them, as I've said, uh, this week, and and to hear from them and what this is this is like for them. So uh, we know we've got some work to do on our communication. Uh, we have seen, and although the numbers change uh, and increase daily, more than 70% of applications have been approved or temporarily approved. Um, and with those that have incomplete applications, for example, uh, the ministry staff uh, are working uh, with providers to complete those applications. We know that affordable childcare is life-changing for families and it's life-changing for communities. Um, and so we're working with providers over this time uh, to get those approvals done.
1: All right. Well, let's talk about the 3% cap though, because as you pointed out, it's everybody under the 3% cap who doesn't need to worry about their approval. But that 3%, is that realistic with everything that's going on right now, including getting and retaining staff? A lot of these childcare operators say that they just can't make it work with a 3% cap.
6: Well, a couple of things on this. So that 3% that I mentioned is is for April 1st. So many providers have uh, requested the increases beyond that 3% for May or for September, for example. And the ministry is working through those. Um, We do look at those requests from providers beyond that 3%. Um, I will say that... that, uh, the fee reduction initiative is one of the key ways that we deliver affordable childcare that is life changing for families. And we're committed to ensuring that those investments, our investments in childcare, continue to support families. Uh, in Australia, there were uh, subsidies um, introduced for childcare, but no associated fee caps. And uh, the parents saw their fees increase. over eight years. Um, So that is part of why we have uh, the fee cap that goes along with the fee reduction initiative. Um, But we know we need to support providers. These are the people who are in the community, who are on the ground, who are looking after our littlest. So that's why we've also increased support to providers at the same time. Um, You know, we've doubled and in some cases quadrupled support for providers uh, through provider payments, and we're supporting providers with wage enhancements for their educators you know, up to $4 an hour. So as we continue to build our child care system as a core service in BC, we know we need to get this right for both families and providers um, and ensuring kids have access to quality learning opportunities.
1: Okay, so is that like a separate program then? So if they need help with boosting wages, rather than saying, okay, I need to raise fees by 4% or 5%, you're saying they have to apply for a special program for the wage fee reduction?
6: All of those who are in the fee reduction initiative are also receiving wage enhancements for their staff. Uh, ECEs are getting a boost by $4 an hour um, because we know this is a skilled profession that provides care to our littlest. So all of those in the fee reduction initiative are getting wage enhancements for their staff.
1: Okay. Well, what if a child care center needs... 4% or 5%, like rent is going up, everything seems to cost more these days. So what if they just need a little bit more than that? Does that mean that they can't get the help in the fee reduction initiative?
6: Though many providers who are in our fee reduction initiative have submitted their applications for the fee reduction initiative program and requested fee increases beyond that 3%, for may or for september and ministry staff are working through those because we know providers have needs we know that there's uh, increased costs and so those applications are in Um, many providers have that request for a four or five percent increase as you said for may or september and they have temporary approval for april for the fee reduction initiative while we review those fee increases
1: Okay. So clearly it's a communication issue, I think, that we're getting here too. So can you commit to improving that for these child care operators?
6: This is something I said to providers I called directly this week to hear from them, to hear what it, uh, they're experiencing in our system and and to learn how we need to continue to work together. Because, as I said, as we build child care as a core service in D.C., we need to get it right by providers, by families, by uh, the educators that are providing the care. So I've connected with many this week. And as I said, um, more than 70% of applications uh, are approved or temporarily approved. And we're working through the remaining, including providing um, uh, supporting providers uh, with incomplete applications so that we can get this right. Because truly, the savings of up to $900 every month for parents is life changing in the community.
1: All right. Well, thank you for your time. We're going to be checking back in with this. But thanks for your time this morning. Thank you so much, Simi.
0: This is Mornings with Simi. Media reports today quoting unverified and anonymous sources have attacked my reputation and called into question my loyalty to Canada. Let me be clear, what has been reported is false and I will defend myself against these absolutely untrue claims.
1: All right, that is now former Liberal MP Handong resigning from Liberal caucus yesterday. Uh, Shocking information to say the least. Allegations that this now former Liberal MP was advising China in the dispute over the two Michaels. Actually telling Beijing to postpone their release. I mean these allegations are so shocking that they did prompt exactly that, the resignation from the caucus late yesterday. They were first reported and revealed by global news investigative journalist Sam Cooper, who joins us now to talk about these latest developments. Good morning, Sam.
5: Good morning, Simi. All
1: right, so let's let's set the stage here for folks who are not fully up to date. Let's go start with the allegations. So what is it that you learned?
5: The allegations from national security whistleblower sources are that CSIS learned MP Handon initiated a conversation, a private conversation, in February 2021 with China's C- senior diplomat in Toronto. That's the consul general. The nature of the conversation: it was lengthy. Uh, it was a, a allegedly MP Handon initiated it as a personal and work-related conversation, and proceeded to discuss at length political matters in Canada ultimately raising the case of the Michaels and these are the the key and serious allegations Uh, CSIS investigators allegedly found uh, MP Don recommended that uh, China needed to show some progress on that frozen legal case Uh, but to release the Michaels at that point would be a benefit to the cons- opposition conservative party's position. This is allegedly what was recommended, and yet uh, that uh, China, the Chinese government, needed to show some progress. So, uh, uh, very strong allegations. As you, as we've heard in the clip, uh, MP Don strongly denies he, however, that that he recommended that the government of China hold at that point the Michaels in prison. However, he acknowledged to Global News in our detailed questions that he had this conversation. Uh, He denies that he initiated the conversation and says uh, he will defend himself. Uh, What's important, we also contacted the Prime Minister's office and said, were you aware uh, of this conversation? Is it possible that MP Handon was acting in any way, uh, official or unofficial, as a government negotiator or communicator on the case? They responded and said they were completely unaware of the conversation until they received media questions and they said there was no way that MP Handon was acting for the Liberal government to call uh, the the Consul General. I'll finish my answer here. Handon's response indicates he believes it was within his uh, purview as Don Valley North MP to have such conversations.
1: Wow. Okay. well, clearly tripped him up here as though he may have thought that. But the head of his party did not think that.
5: That's evident from the answers we've, we right. have from both Don and, uh, and the Prime Minister's office. Another important thing, uh, Simi, from uh, the national security source allegations are that at the time of this call, February 2021, CSIS reporting allegedly classified MP Hand Don as, quote, a close friend of the Toronto consulate based on his call's history end quote. So uh, this is an allegation uh, from national security sources that we've reported. Uh, The background, uh, as you know and your listeners know, we have reported at Global News that uh, uh, senior Liberal Party officials were warned just before the 2019 federal election that CSIS Investigators uh, believed Handon was part of a Chinese election interference network and that uh, he was connected to another alleged suspect being probed at a high and sensitive level in CSIS investigations in Toronto. Again, MP Handon strongly denied those allegations.
1: Okay. And so I guess, Sam, what I get here from your stories on this as well is that this is much deeper and much more, you know, widespread perhaps than we had given previous indications of what was happening in terms of the attempts to
5: influence. Well, Simi, I I, I recall that since our last uh, interview, I said that this is a cross-Canada issue, according to my sources, and we have seen another media outlet uh, in the interim report that China's consulate in Vancouver sought to interfere in the Vancouver municipal election. Uh, Allegedly, uh, you know, councillors or or even uh, others were favored by the consul general in Vancouver. So we can see a pattern here. What else have we seen? We've seen allegations. A Montreal municipal councillor is being accused of running uh, uh, so-called police stations in Montreal and I think I've told you and other colleagues with the Global News Network before that we, uh, we are in touch with people involved or aware of RCMP national security investigations across the country. And what my colleagues are informed is that many politicians across Canada, either wittingly or unwittingly, are implicated in foreign interference, mostly related to China. And we are told it's such a serious issue that this could even uh be a challenge to rcmp investigations
1: oh wow okay so then what are the next steps here sam like obviously there have been a lot of reverberations from your story yesterday so what what are you looking at next
5: oh what what we can gather since uh, the, the story was published is that uh Very clearly, the political uh, situation in Ottawa appears to be changing. It looks like we will see a vote in the House of Commons today on uh, a public inquiry. It looks possible that uh, whereas uh, such motions have been raised in various venues before, there may be, if not uh, unanimous support, there may be majority support from uh, starting with the NDP, who is raising a motion, and the Conservative Party. Uh, we, we're not sure how this vote will turn out, but Simi, I can absolutely say that uh, the talk in Ottawa today is that it looks like uh, the votes in support of a public inquiry should be uh, sufficient.
1: Right. So whereas before maybe the Prime Minister thought that the special rapporteur, that that would calm this, uh, it does seem like this is headed our way. Is that, does it feel to you like, Sam, this is all anybody's talking about in Ottawa right now?
5: Yes as you know uh, President Biden is in town uh, so that would have been you know a, a big story in itself but this story was already uh, you know uh, m- many other media outlets have followed us at Global News and 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 reported their own stories I do believe that this is the biggest story in Canada uh, at the moment and Certainly the public interest, We, uh, I can tell you, Simmy. you know we've talked many times yes. about these issues. The public interest has never been higher.
1: I would agree with you on that one, Sam. Listen, thanks for making the time for us this morning. We appreciate it. Thank you. That's Sam Cooper, investigative journalist at Global News. Check out his work, globalnews.ca. You can see the latest stories that he's got on this. And of course, Sam has been covering this extensively for years now. And it does sound like, as he said, that no matter what the prime minister may have thought in terms of quelling the furor over this about, oh, appointing a special rapporteur, and this is, the public inquiry, I think, seems inevitable at this point. The question is, how soon now can it happen? How soon can they get that up and running? Now, we will continue to follow that story as well. And again, I do recommend go online, check out Sam's work at globalnews.ca.